Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of The Christian Contrarian. I'm Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And this is episode 42 the War of Giants, Part 2, the Rephaim Kings of Canaan. And so I really enjoyed doing the last show with Part 1. And the reason why I like talking about so much of what happened in prehistory is is how it connects to prophecy and why it's so important that we understand prehistory so we can get the full context of what prophecy is telling us about. One of the principles, as you may recall, that I like to portray to people and explain to people is that to fully understand prophecy, you have to understand prehistory because so much of the language and the meanings goes directly back to what happened in prehistory, both before the flood and after the flood that we're focusing on today. And what's really important as well, and part of those principles, is understanding the chronology of events so that we understand who the players are and how they fit in. Because the thing that is one of those things that we have to sort of accept and then work towards resolving if we're struggling with it is that scripture doesn't contradict itself. We just haven't learned enough to understand that every piece of information that is provided to us is not is not a contradiction it is an addition piece additional piece of information for us and if we understand that then things start to flow and if we understand that the bible is linear and then we can understand that the chronology of how the bible unfolds permits us to understand not only prophecy, but prehistory and all the different things that are sort of moving around. And so when we look at early prehistory and as a precursor, and as we talked about in part one with the Mesopotamian kings, that's where Nimrod was. And Nimrod married into the bloodlines of the Raphaim and started hybrid human dynasties. And also understand that Nimrod was a Hamite, son of Cush. And he earned his reputation and began to be a mighty one against the giants. And it's interesting that the Septuagint version of Genesis 10's description of Nimrod actually says he, you know, he battled the giants and earned his reputation there. So we need to understand that because that's context for the kings that are coming out of Mesopotamia that we talked about in part one, and for things that happen in Canaan. And we also understand that because all of this happens in Genesis 10, right after Genesis 9 and the Canaanite 
event, which is really important as part of the context for what's going on in Canaan afterwards, is this is all very early on within the first 10, 20, 30 years of the flood that we see giants show up. And those are the individuals that Nimrod is earning his reputation against. So we need to understand the context and the chronology. And we, we get that if we just let the Bible flow in the order of the events that it provides for us, unless there's markers put in, which we also covered off like the prophets, but they'll have markers as to what periods they fit in. And if we understand that this is the time of Abraham, Genesis 14, so not very far after Genesis 10. And so even though a few hundred years would have likely passed, or at least a hundred anyways, one would presume you have Abraham who is moving into the land of Canaan from the land of Nimrod and the kings and the giants that are reigning over there and into another hotbed of Rephaim. And this is the land that he's going to be promised by God and he's living amongst these mighty Raphaim who know who he is, know which God that they follow. And yet Abraham is able to live and thrive. And so one probably needs to understand in all of this that Abraham is doing this through the support of God and probably through additional strength. Uh, and we're not going to cover this off, but Abraham is quite a warrior, as he's understood in prehistory, and he actually frees Lot from the Mesopotamian kings, but that's, that's another story. But just wanted to sort of lay things down in terms of the context of what we're going to talk about today, because when we look at what's coming out of here, these are the seeds for the beast empires that are going to roll down afterwards. The beast and the metallic empires that Daniel talks about and because they're descendants of the Raphaim dynasties and the bloodlines I think beast is very much appropriate to understand what is being talked about that these are not the offspring of 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 normal humans these are the offspring of the giants that were procreated by the angels with the illegal uh, counterfeit spirit and these are the divine demigods that were ruling and plan on ruling again in the end time. So we need to keep this in mind. And if you recall last show in part one we talked about just as a quick summary we talked about first of all Amraphel and he was the um, king of the Ur the third dynasty and this is set in the time of Amraphel as it leads out in Genesis 14 so we get the marker of time. And he has a name that actually means the giant people of a god, Amraphel, and or uh, the peop giant people of mighty ones. And so depending on how we want to define L there is the meaning. And this is obviously a name that's loaded patronymically with uh, his genealogy, which is very usual. And so he was also part of the Amaru people um, and the Amaru god as you start to see that lineage and that time frame and that spreading of the Amorite people into Mesopotamia. We talked about Arioch, who is the king of Elisar. And Arioch means lion-like men. And so there's a, 
uh, an accounting in the Bible of lion-like Nephilim that were warriors as opposed to kings for the most part. But obviously, Arioch, which means lion-like, was one of those kings and has associations uh, with the Aryans and a few other bloodlines that, um, again, we're not going to go into today. Uh, and we talked about in part one. But these are the lion men of Moab that are talked about in the Bible and the uh, the lion-headed men of Gad. And these are the Erlalu uh, of the, and the Ermalalu of the Sumerian tradition, which were fierce warriors. So again, we have this Nephilim and this Raphaim relationship with these kings and their names tell so much about it. And we had King Tidal, who was the king of nations. And that means a great uh, son and chief of nations, so the great son. And he is... Uh, we talked about last show as being a Hurrian, which is this a transliteration of the Horim. Again, more Raphaim that's in, in the uh, Canaanite uh, land. And we're going to talk a little bit more about them today as well. And Kedalaomar, which means Ked, which is king, and Laomar is God. So he's the king of the god of Elam. And so Laomar was the god of, uh, of Elam. And so again, you get this direct relationship because the king of the god would be an offspring of the god. Just as you have, uh, you know, the names that we're going to talk about in terms of some of the people today are going to have that relationship back to the father or the parent angel, um, which would be the second incursion as I would understand it, as creation after the flood and as Raphaim as opposed to Nephilim. And of course, we talked about in the last show that these were the Kadmonim and the Kadmonites, as you might see them in Genesis 15. These are, which means Easterners in the ancient original uh, people of, of the East. And so when we talk about ancient, that is either going to mean before the flood or it's going to meet immediately after the flood. And I think because they're listed, and they're not listed in the table of nations, like, like none of the Raphaim nations are the pure blood ones, then probably for me it fits better that they show up by Genesis 15. We've already been introduced to a whole bunch of different things about Raphaim in Genesis 14, and who the Canaanites intermarry with in Genesis 10. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about them today as well. But we get a chronology of events and an understanding that these are likely a second incursion, like Gilgamesh was second incursion, according to the Epic of Gilgamesh, after the flood, whereas Upnapishtim, which is also uh, the biblical ark story and the, uh, from the Sumerian Noah, as they like to call him, was also a giant, two-thirds God, one-third human, as Gilgamesh was. And that's the survival story. And so we get, those are the two main versions. Um, and there's a third bucket on the ark, but again, that's another rabbit hole we're not going to go into today, although we may touch on it again. But keep those things in mind as we're talking about now the nations and the people that these four kings are going to fight against in the land of the covenant, in the land of Canaan. And we're going to talk about, first of all, Genesis 14, 5. Because, and then we're going to link back into the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the Pentapolis cities of the Canaanites. Um, just because it's, it just sort of feeds into it a little bit better if we jump forward a few verses. So we're going to uh, go to 14.5 in the War of Giants. 
and we're going to start with one of the nations that the four kings of Mesopotamia are battling with and are probably destroying, which are the Rephaims. And that's in the translation into English has actually an S on it, even though Rephaim would be the plural of Rapha, which means giant. And it comes from 7497. And they're in Astaroth, uh, and that's in the Bashan region. So that's in the Mount Hermon region. And that's where Og and Sihon ruled over the Amorites. Okay. And even though Og and Sihon are the last of the giants, the Rephaim, the Amorites have a different name. And they're not patronymic of Og or Sihon in any way or of the Rephaim directly. Because, as we talked about in the last show, that was Amaru, the god of the uh, giants. And I'll give you the name of the patriarch uh, a little bit later here. But we're on the Rephaim now. And, they, and Sihon ruled from Edrai and Ashtaroth. And that's, of course, with Astarte. And uh, she's also, uh, you know, has several different names like Astarte, Queen of Heaven, different titles like that. And even with a Baal transliteration, uh, of the word uh, Baal, as she's also known on. So we have the Rephaim who are destroyed by these four kings, and I think that is what brings about the succession of Og and Sihon over the Amorites of the Bashan Mount Hermon region that's east of the Jordan River, as opposed to being ruled over by a patronymic king of the Amorites. And so the next set of people are the Zuzim. And it's 2104, which means um, <clears throat> roving creatures or wild beasts. So again, very, very, very uh, apropos, so to speak, for the beast empires, for the seeds of the beast empires. And this is of Ham, which is typically a patronymic name for all of Egypt, lower and upper, even though Mizraim also moved there. So one would have probably been in upper and one would have been in lower Egypt. But for all of Egyptians, it's their people. And what it's saying here is that Ham, who's the one who violated Noah in Genesis 9, he too is intermarrying with giants and his family is intermarrying with giants in Egypt who are going to be the rulers. And these are the Zuzim. And this is the same bloodline that Nimrod is going to succeed either in the second generation or the third generation as the occult tracks it. But that bloodline now becomes the bloodline of, of the Egyptians. And of course, Nimrod is a Hamite as well. So you see how there's an interfit there. And so that's the Zuzim. And so that's how far this war would have taken, all the way from Canaan right through to Egypt. This was kind of that first world war sort of thing and the first balance of power that was erupted over the vassal states of the five cities of Canaan not paying their tribute. And so obviously they lost a war before that. That's not recorded in the Bible. But there's a settling here to the new Nephilim world order of Rephaim, so to speak. And also in 14.5, you have the Emin. 
And the emine means terrors, just as you have the terrors of the beast kingdoms coming down in Ezekiel 32, being imprisoned in the, the prisons, the cells along the sides of the abyss, both before and after the flood. These are the terrors who created terror in the land of the living, but also have died. And they were so horrible in their treatment of humans that they're locked into the abyss. But they're coming back somehow, some way, probably uh, possessing some sort of clone body or something like that in the end time. Because Revelation 9, we have not only the fallen angels, but these demon spirits being released as well. And these are the spirits that are talking to Pharaoh in the dual prophecy of Ezekiel 32. So that's all in 14.5. But there are more Raphaim that are in the land of Canaan, the land where the fourth son is going to take the curse of Canaan. And they're going to usurp that curse by intermarrying with the Raphaim to not become the servants, not to become the slave states. And that's why they rebel in Genesis 14 against the Ur the Third Dynasty and Amraphel king of the time. And Chetelaimer was a tax collector, so he reported back and they bring the alliance into the land of the covenant. So moving on to 14.6, we're now going to talk about the Horites that are in there. And that means cave dweller, just as there's a lot of tradition and legends of giants, I think after they're kind of chased out, and they're still physically giants. They're hiding from the population and they hide out in uh, caves. And caves also have a tradition with portals. And so you, if you've ever heard the Afghanistan uh, interview with Steve Quayle, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. Of course, that giant lived in, in, in a cave as well. And it also means troglodyte. So when you hear literature with troglodytes, look for that as an allegory for some sort of messages and communication of giants within that literature. And the Horites are um, not from Horai in Numbers 13.5, because that happens over 400 years later. And it's not the son of Lotan, Horai, who is a Horim as well. So that's a patronymic name being passed on because the Horim are here in Genesis 14 and this is Genesis 36. Although Genesis 36 does sort of reach back into the beginning of the time of the flood as the kings of Edom who were there before Edom was. So we need to understand that these are Horim that are giants that are talked about in Genesis 14 and not the Horites that are the clans of Canaan who are patriarchless. And so one presumes that the Horim, uh, the Horites that are talked about um, are the offspring of Hori, which probably is the name of the patronymic Raphaim that begins that, that clan. So you've got two classes of people. You've got a Horim that are human hybrids and you've got giants. And that's a common thing to understand if you're trying to keep things straight. And that's why you need to understand the chronology. And so when you have uh, the Horim that are there, 
Understand that these are have a relationship to the giants in Mesopotamia because that is seems to be the transliterated term Hurrian that created the Mitanni dynasties and the Mari dynasties and intermarried uh, down throughout the uh, various Rephaim nations, the, the Amalekites, um, Hivites, intermarried quite regularly, and that they're also part of the the tribes of the Marianu, which again you bring in the Aryans and these are again related tribes. So all of this is an intermingling and sort of a describing from a biblical perspective of these various branches of the Raphaim created shortly after the flood. And similarly we have Genesis 14 7 where you have the Amalekites. And again in Genesis 36 Eliphaz marries a Timna female Horim to produce Amalek, which produces the hybrid human Amalekites who are challenging for the birthrights that Israel are, which is why they're wanting to wipe them out right from the beginning of the Exodus and then are their enemies all the way through, right through to the times of King Saul and King David until King David finally finishes them off from being a power. And they were one of the great powers, the Amalekim and the hybrids. And the Amalekim are also listed in Numbers 13 as a people taller, greater, and stronger than Israel 14 years later. But those will be more of the hybrids than the Raphaim. But they do live amongst the Anakim and probably other Raphaim as well. And we understand the Anakim in Deuteronomy 2 are not Nephilim, but Raphaim. So giants and giants goes back to Rapha and Raphaim. So we also need to understand that these Amalekites, uh, by the chronology, are the Amalekim as opposed to the hybrids that are talked about here in Genesis 14. It just happens way before the hybrids are going to descend out of Amalek from Eliphaz and uh, Timnah. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about the Canaanites and the Canaanite clans and some of the patriarchal, patriarch-less clans who have no patriarch. And they don't have a patriarch in the Table of Nations because that's the Raphaim. And the Raphaim, just as Rapha or Arba, do not go back to the Table of Nations. But Canaan, Sidon, and Heth are patriarchs of the clans, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But even though they're going to intermarry with the giants, they are still the offspring of uh, Ham, and of course Seth and, and, and Zidon are the offspring of Canaan. So they're the part of the patriarchs, part of the 70 that are listed in the 70 of nations. So again, if you understand that, it makes things a little bit easier that these clans are hybrid Raphaims and uh, they will have a patronymic aspect to it. And I'm going to cover that off in my next book uh, for the sequel that I'm doing on um, the Genesis 6 conspiracy. And so the Amorites um, talked about are the same Amorites that are in, again, Numbers 13, the people taller, but not the Anakim, separate. So taller than Israelites by quite a bit, but not as large as the Raphaim. That would be the distinction. And again, that is from the Amaru god, part of the Baalim, and the Amaru god of Ugarit, which I'll come back to with the Canaanites in a second, 
and coming from the words amar and am meaning proud boastful and people as we talked about in part one and the root word for amorite is uh, 567amor e-m-o-r and or transliterated as well as a-m-a-r which is the hebrew word for proud and boastful and so amor amur or Amar is likely the name of the Raphaim, taking his name from the God who produced him, who then passes his name on patronymically to the Amorites, which is why the Amorites uh, are still called Amorites in the time of Og and Sihon in the Mount Bashan region, even though Amorites lived elsewhere as well. But they're not patronymic to the bloodline of Og and Sihon of the Raphaim line, a, a different uh, line than the, uh, than the Raphaim of, of, of the Amaru. So again, I know that's a lot of different terms there, but we need to understand that and understand as well that this would be similar to a king of the bloodline, which was Amraphel, again, which I covered at the beginning of the show a little bit and in detail in part one. So moving on to 14.8 then, we also then have listed all of the five kings of the Pentapolis of Sodom and Gomorrah, of the Canaanites. And again, all of these Canaanite clans organized themselves in Pentapolis city-states. And by the time of King Og, he actually had 60 cities. So he was governing over 12 sets of Pentapolis city-states with the village and the mice webbing of defensive network mixed, uh, you know, as part of that defensive military strategy. So that's why he was so powerful compared to the other uh, kingdoms of, of Canaan and the kingdoms of the Raphaim of that time. And so you have Sodom, which is uh, as the king of Bera, and that means the son of evil. And then you have Gomorrah's king, which is Bersha, which means wickedest um, in, in, in iniquity. And then you have Adma, which is uh, Shinab, which means splendor of the father, with A-B at, at the end of Shinab meaning father. And so, splendor of the father, a lookalike of the father, again, you have that uh, sort of uh, patronymic uh, aspect in, into the name. And it's very important, is also uh, known as, uh, I guess, uh, it's Shinbad. I mean, uh, now that's a rabbit trail I'm not going to go down to. We're going to run out of time if I go on that one, but it is a good story. So, Shemember is the king of Zebuam. And that means lofty flight. And from Eber, also long, as in long-winged or in long-necked. And so just as Og is defined as long-necked, and so are the Anakim. Uh, again, a similarity and patronymic in the names as it's coming down through the line. And Shem is, means renown, just as in Genesis 6, the men of renown. And also equally from Shemaim, which is the heavenly ones. So again, you see all of this encoding into the names that's being passed on to the various kings. And these are the names of the kings of the five of the Pentapolis that refused to pay the tribute any longer. And why Ketalamar went to Aram Hafel and said, we need to organize this alliance and go fight and force them to pay 
the tribute going forward again. And these are Canaanites. And Canaanites, just like the Amorites, it's kind of this umbrella name for everybody in Canaan. But Canaan is the overarching patriarch of the Canaanites and all of his sons and daughters that married in with the Raphaim. And so Canaanites are also mentioned in the Ugaritic text, but distinct as a people. So they're like merchants, just as the Sidons were merchants, and Tyr, part of that is merchants. And so you have the Raphaim kings and their gods of Baal and El and Astaroth and Astart um, as being the same gods as the Canaanites. And most of those Canaanite clans are going to worship the Baalim of Mount Hermon. And they are distinct, though, from the Raphaim. They are going to intermarry and be the hybrids and have the same gods and have Raphaim kings, in many cases, overseeing the various pentapolis city-states, which are fortresses, the mighty walls, Mipsbar, for fenced cities and fortress and castle as it's used throughout the Old Testament. And it's important to understand this, particularly when you're trying to understand what's going on in the wars for the conquest and the giant nations and the city-states that Joshua and Moses are, went up against, and mostly Joshua after Moses died. And so they have the same religion as the Raphaim because they intermarried with them and they have the same pantheon and they have the same rituals. They are sort of the intermix, the, the intermediary class of human hybrids. And they followed in the footsteps of Nimrod. As we talked about at the first part of the show, who was also a Hamite. And this was the land that Canaan squatted just as Nimrod stayed in Shinar, which wasn't part of their division of the 70 nations. And so all the other families of Ham settled in Africa, whether or not it's Cush in Ethiopia, whether or not it's Mizram in, in northern Egypt, whether or not it is uh, put in Libya. And it also probably attests to why the Phoenicians set up Carthage as that would probably would have been part of their um, inheritance of the land, but they decided to squat, illegally squat in the land of the covenant, to intermarry with giants, to throw off the shackles of servitude by creating hybrid races and then lay in wait for the nation of hope, Israel, to come and to wipe them from the face of the earth, and all in spite of the curse that was set against the fourth son of Ham for what he did in Genesis 9.25. So if you want any information that goes a little deeper into the detail on this, I have uh, one on the Mesopotamian kings, and I have another one that's part of the giant wars, um, that talks about Genesis 14 and these giant kings in the land of the covenant. So until next time, may God bless you abundantly and uh, look forward to talking to you again uh, for the first Sunday of uh, the first part of April. So until then, God bless you and uh, see you next time. Step into the world of power 
loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.